So, as we get started, we are continuing our series on the book of Psalms. Now, um, just to bring us up to to speed, I wanted to talk about that uh, the first one in the Psalms was uh, Jamie did Psalm 3, and his sermon was on, The Lord is your shield, sustainer, and your savior. Turn to him and sleep well. And what I got out of that was, God does not change. The week after, uh, Steve gave a sermon on Psalm 131. Let God be God and hope in Him forevermore. And what I got out of that is, God is our secret to lasting peace. And then last week, Pastor Matt brought us Psalm 84. And his, I, I love his title. Country roads are pleasant, but only Jesus takes us home. That is such a Matt verse uh, saying there. And what I wrote down is what spoke to me the most was press in and know the Lord. You need to know the Lord. So this week I get to do Psalm, what is it? 64. No, 46. Psalm 46. And. Uh, The title of my sermon is going to be, God has been faithful, is faithful, and will always be faithful to His people. So with that, first of all, I need to pray, and then we'll get into the Scripture. Dear Heavenly Father, we do come to You this morning full of gratitude. Gratitude of what You've done in our lives what you continue to do in our lives, and what you have promised for us. As my brother said last week, Lord, I have nothing to give these people. But you do, Lord. So I humbly ask you that you, Jesus, would speak through me. And I ask Jesus, only allow the words you would have come out of my mouth to be heard. And if I prepared anything that is unpleasant to your ear, put a stop upon my tongue, Lord. And I especially ask, Lord, that your people will believe what, they're, what you have spoken to them, not Brent. I ask, Lord, that they don't believe it because I said it, but they look in the Scripture to find it for themselves and believe in you. So this, Lord, I just ask that you put a blessing upon our time as we look at your most perfect word. In the name of Jesus, amen. The year was 1517. There was a young monk, theologian, university professor, and he wanted to see change in the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church of his time, 1517. This young priest named Martin Luther nailed his request on the church wall in Wittenberg, and they became known as the 95 Thesis. He wanted to have a scholarly conversation with the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, and he wanted to do it in a civil civil manner. Well, the Roman Catholic Church was not interested in reform, and um, this was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. After several years of dialogue, the Roman Catholic Church finally called Martin Luther to Worms, uh, Germany, which was called the Diet of Worms, which just is a fancy way of saying 
an Italian word or, or Latin word of saying it's a gathering uh, in the town of Worms, but I kind of like it because we would say diet of worms, and you know, who wants to eat worms? But anyway, he was called to the, the Diet of Worms, and he was called to recant his positions or be excommunicated. Well, we think, okay, he's going to be excommunicated, can't go to church. Had a totally different meaning at that time. To be excommunicated from the Holy Roman Church probably meant you would be tortured, you could be imprisoned, or you could be killed. So, knowing this, Martin Luther willfully went up. And it has been said that when Luther went up to uh, Wittenberg, or to the Diet, is he would say, Come, let us sing the 46 Psalms and let them do their worst to us. So, Psalm 46 brought a great comfort to Martin Luther. It was such a comfort. You ever hear the, the psalm or, or the psalm or hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Martin Luther wrote that hymn based on Psalm 46, and that became the uh, anthem of the Protestant Reformation. So again, it brought him great comfort. And I believe, you know, the situation of what's happening in the Bible, the situation of the Psalms brings us context to what to what the God is trying to tell us. For example, when, when Jamie was in chapter Psalm 3, and it was written by David when he fled from Absalom, his son, and said, in his distress, I cried out to the Lord, I lay down and slept, and the Lord sustained me. And that's what his sermon was about. But we knew what it was about because the psalm was about David. So to help us see the context of 48, I wanted to look at, well, who wrote Psalm 48, 46, and for what reason? Well, some scholars give David the credit. Some believe it was written after Israel's victory in 2 Chronicles over Ammon and Moab. Nobody really knows. Most biblical scholars believe it was written when Israel had victory, this is a hard name, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Now, the northern kingdoms have already fallen. This king surrounded Jerusalem. He had 185,000 soldiers, the Bible uh, tells us. And it looked pretty grim. It did not look like Jerusalem would stand. But God spoke through Hezekiah, the king, through the prophet Isaiah, and told him, Israel will stand. So Hezekiah spent the night praying. And in the first thing in the morning when the light broke, they went out and looked. And during the night, the angel of the Lord killed 185 men of Assyria and spared Jerusalem. And you can find this story in 2 Kings 19, 2 Chronicles 32, and Isaiah 37. So it's in three places, so it means it's important. Whatever the situation was for the penning of Psalm 46, we do know it was written out of extreme conflict. Jamie talked about the, the emotions of the Psalms. We'll get into the emotions a little here. And the extreme conflict and the comfort God brings His people through this. So we can see how 
by looking at the psalm, God was faithful to Israel at that time. So in the past, and um, we can also see in the psalm protection in current day and what it means for us and in the future. So yes, I do have a disclaimer. We are going to look at the future in the Bible, but this is not a sermon of the end times. It is not a sermon of the eschatology. But that is what our blessed hope is. That is what we're looking for. So we will be looking in in Revelation. I simply will say, as um, pastors of your church, our statement of faith says, we believe in the physical return of Jesus. We're not going to get hung up. Is it pre-tribulation? Is it post-tribulation? Where's the millennial? When is, that doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus will return and bring his people home. So as a background, where we can see in Psalm 46, it's kind of a biblical overview of the whole Bible. So I wanted to talk a little bit about our Christian worldview before we get into this. You know, we believe God created the heavens and earth. God created the earth and all the animals, and He, God, he created mankind in His own image. And it was perfect. They lived in Garden of Eden. There was no sin until Adam partook of the apple, and he introduced sin. So from the very beginning, when sin happened, there was a division between man and God. And as soon as that happened, God had his first prediction or foretelling of Jesus coming. That's what the whole Bible is about, the coming of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the saints would be made righteous by looking to their, their future Redeemer, Jesus. Jesus came and walked, died for all of our sins, on the third day was raised. And as New Testament believers, we look back to the cross. And we're redeemed because we believe Jesus died for our sin. And then finally, we believe that He is going to come again and set everything back to be perfect. So it's a story of redemption. And along that story, all of mankind... We either live in rebellion, we're rebelling against God and want to be our own God, or we live by submission and submit to King Jesus. That is a Christian overview, as I see it, uh, the whole biblical worldview. So, that as a background, we can finally get into Psalm 46. Let's see if this thing works. Okay. I'm going to read all of Psalm 46, and then we're going to uh, kind of tear it down verse by verse. Psalm 46, to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams made glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. 
God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So it starts out in the prescript to the choir masters of the sons of Korah. And last week, uh, Pastor Matt had a psalm also written by the, song, the sons of Korah. And Pastor Matt was nice enough to say, well, Brent's going to say something about that next week. So, you know, thank you for painting me into a corner. <laughs> no, but seriously, I was going to go over that anyway. Because it's a neat story in itself, and you could have a whole sermon on the sons of Korah, but we don't have time for that. But it is a very interesting story. When Israel came out of Egypt and was in the desert, and um, they were led by Moses, as you know. Moses was a Levite. The sons of Korah were also Levites. And it didn't sit well that their cousin was leading them. They were Levites too, and they thought that they should be in charge. So Korah approached Moses and asked, Who are you to assume leadership over Israel? Moses did not have to defend himself. God spoke. And this is in Numbers 16.32. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people that belonged to Korah. Well, in the Old Testament, when a, when a patriarch sinned like that, God usually wipes out the whole family. And Numbers 26 tells us that not all the sons of Korah were killed. So I'm not going to get into the rest, but I'm going to fast forward. Obviously, they weren't killed because 11 of the Psalms were written by Korah, or the sons of Korah. They were the hands of the feet of the temple. Interesting, um, it, it tells us in, in, the, in the Word that they were the gatekeepers of the tabernacle. And then last week in the Psalm was, it's better to be one day in the gatekeeper of, of the Lord than a thousand in the tents of the wicked. So... I find that encouraging when it goes back to the beginning of the Old Testament and then shows you in the, in, in the Psalms. So, that's... Um, but I'd also say the story of Korah is a picture of redemption in itself because they rebelled against God, questioned God, God killed the father Korah, saved the sons, and now they are serving the Lord and writing psalms. Right there is a picture of redemption. So, um, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not 
fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. So the sons of Korah also, there's several, it started at 45, and they, he wrote 11, the sons wrote 11, but 45, 46, 47, and 48 are all clustered together. 45, if you go back and read it, is 100% Jesus. They're announcing who Jesus is. And then this comes to, so it's a messianic psalm. It's telling of the coming of Jesus. And 46 then talks about uh, the deliverance he has for his people and his future reign. That's why we're going to look in the future. But this is also a picture of the Christian life. Did we not celebrate communion where we look to what God has done in our lives through Jesus, what he's doing currently right now in our lives, and what he promises he will do? So this is a picture of the the Christian life. So when we read, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Why did he use this language, refuge? Well, in the ancient world, very um, agricultural, you had walled cities, and that was your protection. So obviously in the city, we don't have the field. So you're out in the field working. You see a band of raiders um, racing by on their camels. You run, and you go to the city, and the city locks its door. That is your refuge. That's a picture, a, a uh, picture that would be very... Um, evident to them at this time. But God is also our city of refuge. Again, when Israel entered into the promised land, God set up cities of refuge. And it's important that we have this concept. So I want to read Numbers 35, starting with verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge. God is our refuge. Cities of refuge. To be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. What we call this is manslaughter. If somebody would accidentally kill another man, not out of anger, not premeditated, it was an accident, they could go to a city of refuge. And the avenger, or their brother, or whoever who was killed wants to take revenge, had the right to kill them, but not if they're in the city of refuge. So Jesus, this is a picture of a future for, for Jesus. And you also notice it says the stranger and the sojourner among you. From the very beginning, God had set up a a plan for the Gentiles too. It just wasn't God's people, Israel. 
Israel was to tell the world of God, and they never did. But God still had a plan for all of Gentiles, all of mankind, Jew and non-Jew. So when they say being, um, being Jewish, when God is our refuge, the refuge of a castle or the refuge of the city, spoke of Jesus, and they, they knew that. Um, then it goes on to say, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble and its swelling. So I couldn't help but think when I read that when the earth gave way, that they were referring to when God swallowed up the sons of Korah. Even though their sins in the past, God is their refuge. And they're telling us here through all this, nothing man-made or nothing natural or God-made can separate us from God's protection. So this is looking back at His faithfulness and remembering the present. But we also have that little word in there, Selah. What does that mean? We see that throughout the Psalms. The best I can tell is a time of pausing and a reflection. So God is our refuge and our strength in this present day. Let's reflect upon that is what the psalm is saying. Verse 4, uh, or the next section, really 4 to 7. I'm glad you're on top of it because I always forget to do this. I don't know why Jamie brought this up. Anyway. <laughs> there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The city of God. Well, where's that? Where's the city of God? Throughout Scripture, I think it's pretty evident that the city of God is Jerusalem. And that is the center, that is the, the focus of the first statement there. There is a river who makes glad the city of God, comma, the holy habitation of the Most High. So the city of God is where God dwells. And we know that, that in the tabernacle, well, when they, in the tabernacle in the wilderness, or the temple in Jerusalem, where the temple was, you had the holy and then the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And between the cherubim is where God dwelled. So that was a physical representation on earth of God dwelling. So it tells us here that the holy habitation of the Most High. And it also says, there's a river whose streams makes glad the city of God. Or another way, when I looked up the word, another word we could use is rejoice. And there's a river that rejoice to the city of God. You know what's interesting? There is no river on Jeru that runs through Jerusalem. There are springs under it which, which fed it its water source. They made many aqueducts to bring water into the city. But it's odd. Why is Jerusalem the center of the world? 
it's not a um, prosperous town in the sense it's not on a river or a port, and that's where the most successful towns were. It's in the middle of a desert, basically. But why are all eyes on Jerusalem all the time? Why? Because it's a city of God. You know, Christians claim it as their, their home. Muslims claim it as their homes. The Jews claim it as their homes. There's something special about Jerusalem. Maybe that's why God in His Word tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But inter interesting enough, so this river who makes the streams glad for the city of God, where He dwells, these are all pointing to Jesus. These are all descriptions of Jesus. Jesus is that river that makes Jerusalem rejoice. Throughout Scripture, Jesus referred, was referred to as water or, or the flowing water. We see this in John 7. Jesus Himself says, said, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The living water. That's what Jesus called himself. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. If you remember in John 4 at the, at the well, the Samaritan woman, and Jesus told her, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask for you would ask for water, and I would give you living water. Again, he called himself living water. But not only presently, we're going to see the living water um, in the future. And I said we we're going to look at Revelation a little. This is one of those places. Revelation 22. And this is at the very end, at the close of the Bible, when everything is being restored. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on each side of the river, the tree of life. Where do we see that? Garden of Eden. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So again, the river of water, living water, that is Jesus. He will be in the midst of the river. Um, and that's what we'll see when Jesus restores Eden. That's where the tree of life is. So, um, then it tells us, the holy habitation of the Most High, verse 5. God is in the midst of her. He is in the midst of Jerusalem, just as He's in the midst of the new Jerusalem here. God will help her when morning dawns. So remember when we talked about when the armies surrounded Jerusalem, 185,000 men? They got up that morning. God will help them when the morning dawns. They were all gone. God struck them down. Verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. You hear that? He utters his voice and the earth melts. So obviously this has not happened yet. We're still on earth. 
And so, again, God is looking forward to the future when He penned this. When the earth melts, we'll be at the return of Jesus. There's many scriptures, but I want to look at one in Micah. Micah chapter 1. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. So He's in the heaven now. He's going to come back. And will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will split open like wax before fire. The waters pour down a steep place. Then we look forward to when God will defend Israel in the future. So again, it's in the future. But God promises He's coming back to defend uh, Israel. Not only Israel is when um, He gathers all people in Christ. And then finally in this section, verse 7, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. What does the Lord of hosts mean? In the original, it actually is Jehovah Sabaoth. Jehovah, the name of the Lord, and Sabaoth. He is the God of the heavenly armies. When you read the Lord of hosts in Scripture, it's in a military sense. God is the commander. So, when we see that He's going to melt the earth, that's when He's going to physically come back and be a commander of the armies. And so we have to look forward to this. But it's also interesting, he says the God of Jacob. Why does he use the God of Jacob? Many times in the Scriptures, you hear God of Israel or the God of Jacob. If you remember, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob had the 12 sons, which made all the tribes of Israel. But Jacob was the the, the trickster. His older brother, Esau, should have had the birthright. But God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So when you read the God of Jacob, it's when Jacob is in his... uh, uh, How do I want to say this? If you read the God of of, uh, Israel, that's a spiritual sense. Because remember, Jacob wrestled with God, and he would not let him go until he said, will you bless me? Because the blessing was to go to to Jacob. And that's when uh, God touched his hip and made him to um, crippled in his hip. But at that time is when he really surrendered to God. Until that time, he never surrendered to God. So when you read the God of Israel, that's him after he surrendered and in his spiritual sense. So the God of Jacob is before he surrendered and when he's in his flesh. That was the word I was looking for, in his flesh. So why would he say the God of Jacob? Well, we're all in our flesh. Jacob being the patriarch, the blessing through Jacob, that's a picture of redemption also. In case you haven't seen a theme here, God has made a way for redemption all throughout the ages. So again, we look back to what God has done, His present protection and what He promises for the future. And then finally, verse 8 and on. Yeah, that's when it magically goes. Thank you. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth, how He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So you can see all the military. Again, the Lord of hosts is with us. He's bringing desolation to the earth. He's going to break the bow, shatter the spear. This is future glory. So, when I first read that, come behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. How is that a good thing? God's going to bring desolation upon the earth. Well, Psalm 2, again, remember when I said in our worldview, everything is about re- mankind is either rebelling against God or has surrendered. And the majority of the earth has rebelled. And this talking about the desolation on the earth is when God's going to make it right and wipe out the earth. I want to go back to Psalm chapter, uh, the second Psalm. Because this talks about the desolation of the earth. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointing, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, the ungodly of mankind has been rebelling since the very beginning to throw off the cords of God. But God, who sits in the heaven, laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. There is a time coming, my brothers and sisters, when Jesus will come back in His fury. He'll come back to bring desolation on the earth. And you notice He just said, speak in His wrath. That's all He's going to do is speak. That is when verse 9 When he comes back, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Again, this is the future when God comes back. And this future time is a fulfillment of Isaiah 2.4. There's many, many places in the Scripture that foretells of his coming back. And most of them are in the Old Testament. We think the Old Testament is the Old Testament, and the New Testament is about Jesus. There's more in the Old Testament about Jesus than in the New Testament. I believe everything in the Old Testament points to the cross. So, Isaiah 2.4 tells us, He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Just as He'll break their bows and, and their their swords, it'll be a time of peace then. He will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up the sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And this will be at the consummation of the earth. So he tells us in Psalms that this is going to happen. We looked at Isaiah and he foretold it. Finally, we're going to look to the future and read what God says in the book of Revelation. And this is chapter 19. And I will admit, throughout the chapter, I spliced 
the, the meaningful uh, verses together. So this is actually six, 11, 16, 19, 21, but it, it brings a picture together. It'll be fulfilled. Then I saw the heavens open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and righteousness he judges and makes war. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. No ambiguity, no ambiguity there. We're talking Jesus. King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from his mouth. So again, the whole world is coming against Israel. Jesus will come down to save it. All he does is speak, and all the armies of the world are gone. He utters his voice, back to verse 6. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. Just as God spoke, it says in the beginning, God spoke the earth into existence. And in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, God will speak, and the earth will be done, and the new heaven and earth comes. So we see the new heaven and the earth and the river of life that we talked about in verse 4. That's when the river of life and the tree of life comes into play. And then in the next verse, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted to the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. So that's in there, but why does God come back and put down all authority? So that God will be exalted. He tells us right here. Be still and know that I am God. Why does He come back? So God will be exalted. That's what the consummation is all about. Bringing glory to God. We, bringing glory to God. And at that, He says, Be still and know that I am God. This is a command. When, you know, what's a command? Your kids, you're like, Sit down! That's a command. God is saying, be still and exalt Him. Now, if you look at that word, it looks, um, it says be still, and we think of being quiet, which it is, but it also really means to relax, to let go. I like the way the NASB puts it. It says, stop striving and know that I am God. Or, as we said it's about rebellion. What God is saying in these verses, you can continue and fight against God and recognize His authority now, or you can be crushed. To be still and know that He is God is being still before God and knowing His authority so that He will be exalted. And so you either bow now or you bow later. It's that simple. Philippians 2 tells us, second chapter, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God, to the Father." 
So, my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone and in Christ, Jesus is our blessed hope. He is the one that's coming. Now, we can look back at His faithfulness. We know God is present with us through our trouble, and we can look forward to His return. But when that return happens, every knee will bow. So what about if you've never confessed Jesus as your Lord? Well, let's read that Philippians again. One day, all is coming that all will confess the Lord Jesus. All in heaven, meaning the dead saints that went before us. All on earth, all of us who are alive at His coming. And under the earth, those who are in hell. Now, we don't like talking about hell, but it's the reality. And it is loving to talk about it because that's where the souls will go if you don't confess Jesus. Revelation says, And if anybody's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So it's, it's loving to talk about hell. Now, it's not, nobody wants to hear of that in the Western church. They just want to make you feel good and keep coming back. So they don't talk about hell, but that's just a tickling of the ears. You hear things like, well, you can have your best life now. Your best life now is the most unchristian thing you could say because our hope is in the future. My best life is when Jesus comes back. And if you think this is your best life now, that is your best life now because you'll be in, spend eternity in hell. So I just want to say, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never made a confession that Jesus is Lord, today's the day. What we've looked at here was a tree of life. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree in the garden, this introduced sin once again. We are all born sinners, and we all deserve the lake of fire. But God loves you and sent His Son Jesus to die in your place to pay for your sin. And God shows that He has the power over sin and death when He raised Jesus on the third day, and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. So if you believe Romans 9, that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. You have full access to the tree of life. Let that day be today. But what about those of us who do believe? And we say that we have comfort in the past and in the present, but especially the future. What's going on in the world around us today? Just, you know, with, with Afghanistan and COVID and a lot of things going on and some people, you know, saying it's prophecy well, I tell you what, it's just a time for comfort in the sense that God is sovereign. He knows what's going on. He has us in His hand, and we can look forward to His, his future reign. And really, this gives us an opportunity to share Christ with the people around us. I was at work this week, and one of my coworkers, he was just down. I'm like, what's up with you, Nathan? And he's like, everything's got me down. You know, Afghanistan, COVID, now they're going to force us to get vaccinations. I don't want the vaccination. And, and, and I'm like, you're Christian, right? Our faith is in Jesus. Our faith is not in our money. Our faith is not in all the ammo I can get. 
Our faith is not in our politics or our political party. But I will say, yes, it's right to prepare. Yes, money is, is good, used wisely. But don't put your faith in that. I have no problem with the Second Amendment. You all know that we have our CCW. But that's not where our faith is. Our faith is in Jesus, and He is going to protect us no matter what. So, again, turn your eyes to Jesus. That's where our safety is. So take comfort in Psalm 46, just as Martin Luther did and countless others throughout the century. Take comfort when you read, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present in our help and trouble. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this psalm this morning, Lord. We thank you that you are ever-present. We thank you that you are faithful. You've been faithful throughout the ages, and you will be faithful in the future. We believe every promise that you have ever given us, starting in Genesis when you said you will send the Savior, and we see that Savior alive and well today in our hearts and what you've done in our, our lives, Lord. And we look forward to the future. But we also confess to you, Lord, there's many times we've taken our eyes off Jesus and we sink just like Peter when he takes his eyes off of you. Though Peter was walking on the water and took his eyes off you and, and started to drown. So we ask you, Lord, to forgive us for the times we have not kept our eyes on you. We ask that you would forgive us for the times that we've relied on ourselves and not you, God. I ask for forgiveness for the time that we think that all of our, our, our money or our country is going to save us. Only you and you alone bring salvation, Lord. Our safety and our security, we confess to you, is in you and you alone, Jesus. We just thank you. I ask a blessing as we leave. And um, allow us to share this hope of the future with you, with our coworkers, with our, our fellow students, with our neighbors, with our families. We just ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've had a prayer of confession, and for the things that we've fallen short of, and you ask God to forgive you, I can tell you that he has forgiven you. You know, we close our prayer, our, our um, scripture of forgiveness is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen.